Hey listeners, it's Lauren here with a message from our friends at DraftKings. The second round is in full swing, and the action increases from game to game. This is where the contenders are separated from the pretenders. To give you some skin in the game, DraftKings will be offering free-to-play pools every day of the basketball playoffs, offering players a free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes. That's up to $10,000 in total prizes up for grabs each day. The best part is that it's free to play. DraftKings free to play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games and track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN when you sign up to get your free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code TBPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. I'm Law Murray at The Athletic, and I'm on the NBA beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the Twins. Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Hey, this is Aaron. This exhilarating playoff episode, Lauren and I are joined by ESPN Wisconsin's Pratik Patel, who's covered the Bucks for the last six years, ever since he first moved to Milwaukee. We recorded Sunday afternoon between games one and two of the highly anticipated Bucks Nets Eastern Conference semifinal series. In the opener, James Harden went down half a minute into the game with right hamstring pain. Since the interview, he was ruled out of Game 2, with his availability for the remainder of the series still uncertain. Although Giannis Adetokounmpo had a huge night, he didn't get much help. Meanwhile, the Nets' supporting cast impressed, lifting Brooklyn to a comfortable Game 1 victory. Pratik breaks down the series in depth and even looks ahead to the most likely possibilities in the case that the Bucks underwhelmed for yet another postseason. We enjoyed getting to know Pratik, who spends a good deal of his free time baking, particularly cheesecake. Only, during the pandemic, he couldn't bring the desserts to the office for colleagues to share, so as you can imagine, he wound up consuming much more baked goods than advisable. It's fine. He's also a huge Scripps National Spelling Bee enthusiast, so look out for him to live-tweet the event this year. But enough of the intro, I'm so excited to share this conversation, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Pratik, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's always a pleasure to to meet a fellow native Angelino. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's dive into this intriguing matchup 
it's a damn shame if you ask me that these two powerhouse teams have to match up this early in the postseason. But here we are. Game one, I think, largely lived up to the hype. Of course, the James Harden re-aggravation of that problematic right hamstring is the number one takeaway from Saturday's Milwaukee loss. But I'm sure you have a number of other takeaways. What are the most important ones that stand out to you? I think the biggest thing for me from game one was Milwaukee shooting. They're a team that has proven over the last couple seasons that they tend not to fare well after layoffs. Um, we saw it last year. I mean, the bubble was a completely different thing for them. They just weren't the same team as they were in the regular season. Uh, but they did not do well in the bubble. They did not do well after the one week during the play-in games, you know, in game one against Miami. They end up coming up with a win there in overtime against the Heat in round one, but they shot very poorly, not how they played normally during the regular season, but they were able to come up with a win anyways. Obviously, the Nets are just so much better than the Heat were this year. Um, so when you look at game one, really it's the 20% from three for Milwaukee. And then if you want to get a little more specific in the shooting, I mean, in Chris Middleton, six for 23, Drew Holiday, seven for 17. They're, like, they're just not going to cut it. Yeah. Um, when you have games where Giannis leads your team in three-pointers made. Ouch. And he's, yeah, he's he's improved, obviously, but that's just, just not what you want, especially in a playoff game, and especially against a team like the Nets, where you knew you were going to need kind of maximum firepower in order to keep up. But I would say the biggest takeaway was, on the Buck side, it was the shooting. On the Nets side, it was... Uh, kind of the others right obviously looming over everything is is the health of James Harden and you know as of the time we're recording this I don't believe there's been any indication on game two uh, last I saw status was unknown so it's tough to know what it's going to look like but if that truly is a re-aggravation of that hamstring injury I'd be shocked if he even played in this series let alone in game two uh, and if that's the case obviously it makes things a little bit easier for the Bucks defensively to hone in on two stars rather than three. But if the others uh, for the Nets are going to play as well as they did in game one, then it might not matter, right? Because the mm-hmm. Nets are that good. Uh, yeah. So when, you know, Blake Griffin, Mike James, uh, Joe Harris combined for 49, <laughs> that's uh, that might be tough to overcome regardless of how you shoot if you're the Bucks. But yeah, those are, to, to me, the two biggest takeaways from either side. Yeah, definitely. Mike James logged 30 minutes after playing just 10 in the entire Celtics series. So I think that Brooklyn will be hard-pressed to get that same level of production out of him in future games, but we'll continue to monitor that. And Blake Griffin, of course, was great. We'll get back to that a little bit later. But you talked about the rest. They had six full days off before this series, whereas Brooklyn only had three. And so maybe that largely factors into the shooting rust. We've also seen in past postseasons, Chris Middleton just sometimes has really dreadful shooting nights. And then other times he just can't miss. He just seems to be kind of a streaky type of player. For those reasons, are, are you not too concerned about him given his playoff level of experience in recent years? Because he was getting the looks that he needed to for the most part, right? Yeah, and you know when you look at some of these games where the shooting does tail off some for the for the Bucks, and sometimes it's after a long layoff, and sometimes it's just not their night. But Chris tends to be the one most impacted in those spots because 
you know, when he doesn't shoot well, it does stand out more than with a lot of other players around the league because it is a heavy diet of mid-range jumpers, contested fadeaways. It's not the prettiest shot selection in today's NBA. And so when he's not hitting, it's going to stand out more. I think I've just kind of come to that realization over the last couple seasons where that's just how it is, right? Mm-hmm. But he didn't hit a single three-pointer in game one. You would trust, based on Chris's production the last couple years and even the last couple postseasons, that the concern really shouldn't be there for him, at least not in my mind. This is also kind of the loosest the Bucks have been in the last couple postseasons. The last two years, they were really pressed. You know, there was a lot looming, a lot of talk about championship window. There was all of the the conversation surrounding Giannis's future. And this year just felt different. Like the entire attitude of the team, the aura around them, um, the feeling in the locker room was just different this year. And some of that's personnel because Drew Holiday just has such a calming factor and is mm-hmm. much more of a an internal leader than I think Eric Bledsoe was. But also, I think with Giannis's contract situation getting sorted out and then that combined with just, okay, the one seed is not our goal, right? Like it was the last two years. They, they went all out to make sure that they were, that they had home court throughout the playoffs. And this year it was about trying things out, making sure that they were fully prepared with a full arsenal of strategies come postseason. And, you know, they end up in the three seed instead of the one. And even by the end of the year, they could have had a real shot at the one seed, but the priorities had shifted a little bit. And so, um, you know, I think it was Law Murray a couple episodes with with y'all that said, you know, with Paul George's comments after the Clippers went down 0-2 about not being concerned. Mm-hmm. And Law told y'all, like, if you're a professional at this stage, like, you can't have panic in your mind. You can't. Yeah. That's not how these guys act. Right. And at least the ones at the very top of the game. And so losing game one, I don't think is a massive concern for – for them, and I don't think the shooting specifically is a concern for Chris, especially because it does feel like there are very clear ways that they can improve. Right? It wasn't like a mm-hmm. a nail biter that you know Brooklyn just happened to to hit the last shot or had the last possession. Um, there are very clear areas in which uh, the Bucks can make improvements. And I love you touching upon that aspect of uh, them feeling and playing looser, given that they're is not that uncertainty looming over the franchise regarding Giannis's future. And that makes a lot of sense, but were they potentially too loose or relaxed in game one where they just didn't have the urgency or intensity level needed to beat an opponent like this? Or is that more just no one can really match the energy level of a Blake Griffin who's just diving on the ground like a madman for every loose ball? Yeah, and it's a good point because there was a lot of Blake Griffin diving around and making the hustle plays. And typically the Bucks, as loose as they've felt this season, uh, once those guys, especially this collection of players, once those guys are on the floor, you don't really feel that. It's Giannis is a very intense player. Um, Drew Holiday, it feels like, takes every matchup very personally. Um, adding P.J. Tucker to the mix. Um, and you would imagine with this series, this is kind of, in theory, you know what they brought P.J. Tucker in for was this series and this set of matchups with this Nets team. You even saw PJ Tucker with, you know, getting the start in game one, hits a corner three early, forces a couple turnovers, and he's slapping his head like a football player wearing a helmet, like smacking his own head on the <laughs> way back, and he's fired up. And Trying to like, get his teammates into it, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this is a very intense team when you get onto the floor, but it's not, they're just, it, it feels like they're playing with a, with a different level of, um, it's not necessarily swagger because I don't think it's, it's bred in like a, a cocky manner, but they are just playing with like a different attitude this year. Um, I do think they could have shown a lot more urgency in game one though. Mike Boonholzer takes a lot of criticism uh, the last couple of years for his, his lineups and, you know, the rotation and the minutes. And I think some of those are totally valid, but ultimately, you know, if Chris is going to shoot six for 23 and Drew's going to shoot seven for 17 and you put up 14 turnovers to Brooklyn's eight, I'm not sure the minutes are going to matter as much. And especially when you look at this series and, you know, I felt like coming into the series, it was going to be a toss up. And, you know, a lot of people were picking the series to go six or seven. If that's the case, and, you know, especially with Harden out now, the Nets are going to play Kyrie 44 minutes a night, KD 40 minutes a night. Um, you want the series to go long because mm-hmm. you're going to be fresher than they are. Now you run the risk of, you know, what are you actually saving your guys for? Giannis only playing 35 a night just to lose in five or six. Like you're not actually saving them for anything. But I think that there are some ways where they can show the urgency that they need to um, going into game two. Before we get too deep into this episode, I'd love to get your prediction for the series outcome. You don't have to get too specific, maybe even just the team and the number of games. That would be a good starting point. Yeah. Uh, going into to the series. So before game one, I had, uh, I had picked the Bucks in seven and I felt like, you know, kind of like I just said, I thought every game was going to be a toss up. Um, I think the Nets are super talented, obviously, and they're they're very top heavy. And I made that prediction before Harden was hurt, obviously, and before the Bucks lost game one. But, you know, Bucks and seven to me felt like the right choice because it just I felt like if the series was going to go long, then it favored the Bucks because the Nets were going to have to rely more on their three guys, whereas the Bucks are a little bit deeper of a team. Um, and you would hope that over the course of the long series, um, mm-hmm. those net stars, you know, almost break down a little more um, fatigue. And also, you know, this is a team that's bothered the the Nets um, over the course of years and on a bunch of different teams. Like Kevin Durant's going to get his on anyone, but <laughs> it's not fun to have an entire series of PJ Tucker trying to guard you, right? Like that's, <laughs> It's not going to be fun for anyone. Um, he's not going to have a good time. But uh, He won't know, enjoy it. He'll still probably get 30. But it, at least if he gets frustrated, that, that can really go a long way for Milwaukee. Yeah. And you look at you look at game one, and they, they combined uh, Durant and, and Kyrie Irving, I, I think, combined for 54. But it also took them 51 shots to do it. Yeah, you'll so definitely I think the Bucks are that. pretty happy. Yeah. I think the Bucks are pretty happy with how they defended uh, – the stars, especially, you know, once they knew that James Harden was ruled out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of, okay, do the Bucks continue to dare Blake Griffin to shoot threes? Is he going to shoot four for nine again? Um, yeah. Is Joe Harris, I mean, you, Joe Harris, I think was five for nine in game one. And that's pretty expected if you're going to get him open looks, but you know, it's about the other guys and how you defend them and what you're willing to sacrifice uh, in order to, Right. potentially send extra help at, at the two stars for the Nets. Mm-hmm. My prediction going in was the same as yours. I had Bucks in seven. I think also the continuity factor right. could uh, play a big role, especially deeper into a long, competitive, hard-fought series. 
So we'll see what happens. That was, of course, before Harden went down. But I don't know that that changes a lot because Brooklyn is still so talented. Of course, they won game one with 30 seconds of Harden. But on a positive note, and I think this was something expected going into the series. I'd be curious to hear if you expected it. The Bucks were pretty dominant on the glass. That led to a 20-4 to advantage in second-chance points. They grabbed 15 offensive rebounds to Brooklyn's six. Brooklyn's a little bit smaller. They were playing Blake Griffin as their big man a lot of the time. He was really effective in some ways. But the Bucks dominated in the paint, too, 72-48. to Is that an area where the Bucks can assert their dominance going forward and potentially force Brooklyn to have to use DeAndre Jordan or more minutes of Claxton? Yeah. I think once uh, the Bucks saw that Blake Griffin was going to be starting at the five, they kind of knew that those are two areas where they were going to have to really dominate. Um, and you saw the the net struggle with the size and the the length of pretty much every Bucks lineup that was out there, including the starters. Brooke Lopez had a really big game, continuing what's been a really good postseason for him, even dating back to, to round one against Miami. Um, I mean, I don't think DeAndre Jordan's played more than like five minutes in the last month. And I know nine in the playoffs, right? Right. He, he hasn't played in the playoffs. And I, even before that he's been out for, he hasn't played in quite some time. And I, I was curious to see if Steve Nash was going to give him any run, but it looks like they're okay. Run. And especially if Blake's going to be playing that way, it certainly becomes a little more tenable to, to live with just two bigs rather than a, a three big rotation. And, Claxton shows flashes, but he's also super young. And I don't know that you were going to see Claxton get a ton of time on Giannis because that feels like a recipe for either Giannis getting to the line repeatedly or just getting to the basket repeatedly. So it was interesting to see. The rebounds were, are, are huge. This is a, a Bucks team that, that has been really good on the boards on both ends of the floor, um, basically since Brooke Lopez was brought in under this Budenholzer system. One thing that really hurts is not having Dante DiVincenzo because he uh, he can be an up-and-down player and very chaotic at times, but he is a really good rebounding guard, and he had his impact felt in the games that he did play against Miami because he was a menace, especially on the offensive class. You know, getting inside, um, one thing the Bucks have really introduced this year is having guys camp out under the basket in the dunker spot on offense as a counter to the wall that defenses will try and build against Giannis. And uh, because of that, added layer to their offensive philosophy it does put them in a good position to to either tap out rebounds or for the smaller guards down there to actually grab offensive boards and when the bucks were playing really well against the nets in game one in the first quarter they they had nine offensive rebounds in the first quarter they only had six the rest of the game uh kevin durant after the game yesterday was like you know he said as much it was you know when we were down 10 in the first quarter they were getting a lot of rebounds and uh getting a lot of second chance points and we started playing a lot better once we limited that. We got our act together on, on the glass. And so it'll be interesting to see if that's something that Brooklyn really puts an emphasis on containing and, you know, in doing so that'll limit their transition opportunities and things like that. But um, those are going to be the counters that you see from game to game in the playoffs, right? And to, mm-hmm. to see what coaches decide to do. But regardless of what, Brooklyn decides to do in terms of prioritizing the defensive glass versus, you know, getting out on the run. That doesn't change the fact that 
Milwaukee is going to be bigger. Uh, they're going to be longer and they're going to be stronger, especially down low if the Nets choose to continue playing small. Right. So it might not matter what Steve Nash decides to do or what the priority ends up being for Brooklyn because those are areas, you know, on the glass and points in the paint. Those are areas where Milwaukee should dominate regardless. And my last question to you before kicking it over to Lauren concerns those small ball lineups. As you well know from watching quite a number of Clippers games in your time, Blake Griffin is very, very talented. He's obviously in a different stage of his career, and he plays a very specific role for this Brooklyn team. But we saw how effective he could be, especially when Harden went out. A lot of their offense was run through him when it wasn't run through Kyrie Irving or Durant. And he's a really good facilitator in open space or when he's doubled. He was really doing everything highly effective. I know you mentioned earlier he may not go four of nine from deep again, but to what extent do the Bucks need to tweak their defensive game plan against him? Or uh, is it fine how they're combating him? Yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the game you have to play if you're if you're Mike Budenholzer in the Bucks. That's uh, the balance you have to find because you might find yourself in a spot where you have to choose between okay, do we let Blake really get to his spots and play his game and get comfortable if it means we're doing a really good job on Durant and Kyrie Irving? I would imagine you'll see tweaks. Um, Brooke Lopez had a couple possessions in Game One where it was tough to tell if he was going to drop all the way back to the basket in pick and roll coverage or if he was going to actually step out and he just got kind of caught in no man's land, which is again, something he's not used to doing that much of until this year was, um, you know, hedging or, or coming all the way out on screens uh, defensively. So you're going to have to see some adjustments there and the adjustment might just be like, Hey, play cleaner, right. Um, be more focused, limit the mistakes. But Blake Griffin is like you said, an undeniable talent. And even, Though the athleticism has, has fallen off and he's had a rash of injuries. We're only two years removed from him being all NBA third team. And the way he's evolved his game really lends itself to the role he has now because when the Nets first acquired him, I just kind of assumed that, okay, maybe he gets some small ball lineups with the main guys, but ultimately it might make a lot of sense for them to be able to use Blake Griffin with the second unit, uh, someone to run the offense through, someone who can facilitate, he can make every pass. He can be the ball handler or the screener in any pick and roll action. Um, he's just a really versatile player on offense. And it would allow you to kind of stagger the minutes for, for the main guys otherwise. But ultimately, the Bucks are going to have to decide, is there a way to actually roll out a defense that can provide ample coverage on all three, especially since you don't have to worry about James Harden, at, at least as it stands right now? Um, or is it a case of, okay, Blake Griffin, go beat us and we'll live with it if it happens, because we're not going to, we're going to do our best to make sure that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant don't. Uh, returning to a topic that you touched upon a little bit earlier, especially on Bucks Twitter and for Bucks fans, they love to give Bud a lot of heat about his choices of rotation. And in game one, the main target of that was the amount of minutes that Jeff T got, which was really surprising to a lot of people. But from another lens, he has to do something to, you know, fill the role that Dante DiVincenzo previously was occupying and also, you know, 
on a night where Bryn Forbes is having a lot of struggles, especially shooting, maybe you want to give some other role players uh, a chance. So what's your take on how that situation played out in game one? Jeff Teague playing what felt like 14 disastrous minutes yesterday was not um, ideal. And I think he only finished technically as like a minus two, which I would have lost a lot of money betting on what his plus minus ended up being because those 14 minutes did not feel good at all. But this is the the trouble you have when you lose a player like Dante DiVincenzo and then you have to adjust your lineup because this is the first day. It's not like PJ Tucker was starting games at any point previously for this team. And so when that happens, you have the trickle down. The other thing too is you mentioned Bryn Forbes in the shooting. Bryn Forbes can handle a larger load of minutes if he's shooting well. If he's not, if he's not shooting well, he's going to provide you some gravity on offense, but otherwise he's not bringing a whole lot to the table. You know, if this is just a, a one game layoff aberration, like we've seen from the Bucks in the past, then I think all of this becomes a little more tolerable. And, you know, those Jeff T minutes might go from 14 down to like eight or seven. Um, if Bryn Forbes is shooting well, if Pat Connaughton is shooting well, those guys can definitely jump up from 20 and 22 to, you know, 25, 26. And that eats away everything you kind of want in not having to play Jeff Teague that much. And it sounds like I'm picking on Jeff Teague. He just hasn't been good. And the bench, even though this team is more top heavy, this Bucks team than they have been the last two years, um, the bench has still been really good for them. You saw Bryn Forbes really make uh, a name for himself in that heat series to start the playoffs. But uh, Pat Connaughton's been solid for them all year. He's been a really good shooter, um, a really good spark off the bench for them. And, you know, Aaron mentioned the continuity of this team earlier. And Pat Connaughton is one of those guys who benefits from that because he's used to playing with all of these guys um, and has been for a couple of years and he knows his role. Um, there are nights where you kind of forget he's out there, but that's the case with just about any role player. Uh, Bobby Portis was um, <laughs> their leading scorer off the bench in game one. Unfortunately for the Bucks, he only had six. But he's been a solid piece for them. Um, there was a stretch this year where you thought he might get six man of the year buzz. The rotation's going to tighten, though, you know, with Dante out. They don't have much else in the way of uh, playable bench options. You know, Thanasis um, Antetokounmpo is a guy who's gotten run in stretches over the years, these last couple seasons. But he's not really someone you play unless you need to. Um, he got some garbage time minutes in game one. but. What you saw in game one, that's the rotation. Um, Now, ideally, some of that tweaks and you're able to phase out minutes for anyone who's not playing well on a given night. But ultimately, you know, as this series goes on, you're going to see the starters minutes ramp up. Ideally, that's been a big criticism of Mike Boonholzer in the past um, of not playing the stars enough. That came back to a head after game one, but you would hope that as the series goes on, if it stays tight, um, that those main guys, Giannis, uh, Chris, Drew, are playing into the 40s when it when it's needed. Because otherwise, you know, I think it's just kind of human nature for any of us who watch sports and love sports. You kind of want to go down with the guys that you trust and the guys who got you there, right? Um, it's a lot easier to swallow that pill, uh, losing a series, knowing that, okay, well, we went down playing our best players and it just didn't work out because otherwise, I mean, I think there was an athletic report 
before the postseason or maybe a couple games into the, the first round where um, it was reported that Mike Boonholzer is probably out if the Bucks don't make a deep playoff run. And I, I think in this net series, how they potentially lose matters as much as if they lose. But you could see a coaching change after the season, despite, you know, how good the Bucks have been the last three years overall. Um, obviously never making it to a finals, but having a lot of success and having some really dominant regular season teams, we still might see a coaching change for this Bucks team, um, depending on how this uh, how this postseason ends for them. And more on filling that gap that DiVincenzo left with his injury. Milwaukee in game four of round one went with Pat Connaughton with the start in game one of this series. They started P.J. Tucker, likely to match up a lot of his minutes well, the minutes that he has defending Kevin Durant. This season, P.J. Tucker has been the epitome of a defensive specialist. He doesn't really put up that many box score stats at all. Uh, He's attempting the fewest shots per minute of anyone in the NBA this season among qualifying players. In the regular season, he shot only once per 8 minutes and 38 seconds, which is kind of crazy for a... Yeah. player in today's NBA, but uh, he's been really affected for them defensively. Obviously, I, as a Rockets fan, know this very well, but um, can you touch on his role in this series? Yeah, um, I love watching P.J. Tucker. He, uh, I think I might have tweeted it in one of the first games he played for, for the Bucs, but P.J. Tucker might be the most electric player in the NBA who doesn't actually do anything exciting. Um, he's I, I love watching him. He's so much fun to watch. And yeah, they brought him in, you know, it it helps to have a veteran in any case and someone you can trust from three, but uh, he was brought in for this series. You know, he is here to give them another guy that they could throw at um, any of these Brooklyn stars uh, for stretches, right? Um, And we just talked about Dante, but if he's healthy, uh, it really unlocks a lot for this Bucks team defensively because then you could have, Dante on Kyrie, um, Chris Middleton presumably on James Harden, and then yeah, you can have Giannis spend time on on Kevin Durant, but you could also keep Giannis kind of in that free safety role that they like as a as one of the league's best help defenders uh, and rim protectors, where he's you know coming off of uh, whether it's Joe Harris or Blake Griffin or whoever, but that is I think the what the plan would have been uh, because you could throw PJ Tucker on Kevin Durant. Now losing Durant or losing Dante certainly changes all of that, um, and the Nets losing James Harden obviously throws another wrench into that. But this is this is the series that PJ Tucker was here for. He gives you an option that you can trust on defense and someone who can help you counter the you know the theoretical wall that teams like to build defensively against Giannis because you know last year or really the last two years. Giannis got really good as a passer, as a playmaker, and he's still getting better, but um, it it really didn't matter the last two years. They didn't have the shooting around him that they do this year, um, especially from guys that you can trust uh, out on the floor on both ends uh, for the most part. But um, this is why P.J. Tucker's here. The game started out great for him in game one. Uh, I think he had two steals and or at least forced two turnovers and he had the corner three to uh, really early in the game. And you just, you felt like it was PJ Tucker time, but you know, as you mentioned, he's not someone who really fills it up. Um, 
But if you watch, his presence is felt, right? Like he, anytime he's on the floor, you know where he is because he is in the action uh, on defense. And anytime one of those guys gets the ball, you can see where P.J. Tucker is and you can see his kind of mind racing on defense. And he's, he's exactly what this Bucks team needed if they were ever going to match up with the Nets, which obviously it turned out that they did. So uh, he is here for this series. There are just so many interesting storylines in this series to cover. It's kind of crazy that we've made it just about half an hour into the show and we haven't asked a specific question about the reigning two-time MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Despite Milwaukee's loss in game one, he was able to get his with a dominant performance, six for 16 for 24 and field goals, 34 points. Is there any personnel or anything that Brooklyn can do to slow him down? Uh, I know you and also our previous guest, Chris Mulholland, said that they just need to really build a wall around him. Yeah, and that's been the kind of preferred uh, strategy for most teams that have had any success against him. But um, really it came down to personnel going into this series for Brooklyn. You know, DeAndre Jordan was probably the only guy who was strong enough to defend him, but he unless they're playing full drop coverage, he just doesn't stand a chance at keeping him from getting to the basket. Um, and back in, uh, God, that might've been May, they played uh, back-to-back uh, games in the regular season. And DeAndre Jordan was the primary defender. Uh, it was really him and then Blake Griffin, but uh, they played all the way off of Giannis and they let him shoot. And for those two games, I think Giannis shot 39% from three. So uh, it worked out for the Bucks then, but that's not something that you really were going to see a ton of in this postseason series. I don't think the the Bucks wanted to just have Giannis shoot because he was open. Um, he's going to take his four or five threes a game. Um, and those aren't so much about whether they go in or not. It's about helping, you know, one of the best offensive players in the league feel comfortable and getting into his rhythm. And also, you know, if you shoot a couple, you do increase the chances that someone's actually going to step out or bite on a pump fake. And um, it seems kind of wild that that would happen given Giannis's abilities as a shooter, but we've seen it in the past, even with smart defenders. Uh, if you see someone shoot enough, you're just naturally going to, you don't want to keep giving up open shots. And so I think you're going to see moments where they do opt for size, uh, whether that's Claxton or, you know, if Blake is the nominal big in any lineup. But ultimately, it's going to have to be a, a team defense, right? Like, how much do you collapse um, and potentially allow shooters to be open, especially as we've already discussed a couple times? No one's expecting Milwaukee to shoot as poorly as they did in game one, um, 20% from, from three. That's just not who they are. Uh, but one of the big things that Milwaukee's really benefited from this year in uh, many ways, uh, but they've they've tried to develop a couple different ideas in terms of how to counter going up against the wall. And, you know, I mentioned having a player in the dunker spot um, near the basket, kind of on the block a little bit earlier. That, that was kind of the first one that we saw, but the, the biggest thing that they've done to help this offense is, is acquired through holiday. Uh, Cause he is, he's just a, a complete game changer for this team uh, on offense and on defense, but um, offensively it gives you another ball handler. Uh, and someone who can play make, someone who can get the ball out of Giannis's hands and get him the ball on the run. Um, it's a top tier point guard in this league that 
I was an Eric Bledsoe guy. Uh, I was an apologist uh, for for quite some time, but um, ultimately he didn't show up in the playoffs. And you just felt the second you got to see Drew start to gel with this team that, okay, this is different. Um, you know, defensively there are they might be as good. You know, Drew might be as good defensively as as Bledsoe, but even then it's it's a different type of defender. It's a more versatile defender, and offensively it's it's night and day different. And so when you look at how teams have had success against Giannis, uh, namely the the Raptors two years ago and the the Heat last year, you're able to put size on him, but you had a lot of guys kind of attacking from different spots, uh, reaching down, active hands. Um, that That's one thing the Heat had last year that you just didn't see enough of this year in the postseason was um, they swipe at everything. So if you were driving, if you were Giannis or anyone on the Bucks, anytime you drove, that ball was getting probably two hands on it uh, by the time you got all the way up and into a shot. Um, and Brooklyn doesn't seem to have those kind of defenders, those kind of help defenders. But if you're able to even just get in his way enough, you know, maybe draw a couple charges. Um, Blake has been one even back to his Pistons days where he <laughs> – Definitely was able to get under Giannis' skin a little bit because of how often he would he would flop or try and take charges or, um, you know, really just do everything but try and defend him one-on-one because that's a losing proposition for just about anyone in the league. So um, I could see the Nets opting for size on him, but ultimately you're going to have to stop more than Giannis. This is not like uh, the teams of, of the last two years for the Bucs pushing more on the impact of the Drew Holiday edition as one of those other guys. You talked a lot about his on-court impact offensively and defensively, and that's palatable like to even casual viewers. But off the court as well, last year he won Teammate of the Year Award. Uh, this year he just won the Sportsmanship Award. So touched just a little bit more on you know his impact off the court for this team as well. I think for, for any of us who are probably a little more involved in the league than, you know, uh, I guess a, anyone who called themselves a casual fan would be, you probably knew who Drew Holiday was, but um, Drew's widely regarded around the league as like one of the good guys, right? One of the best just dudes in the NBA. Um, and any podcast you listen to with players, whether it's JJ Reddick's podcast or, uh, um, you know, even some of like the road trippings or whatever, any, any, of the podcast with former players or guys that have players on um, anytime one of those guys is asked like, Oh, who's the most underrated player in the league? Like who's the person who's defended you the best? Like who's one of like your favorite teammates you've ever had? Like Drew comes up a lot uh, for a guy who's not necessarily like a superstar. He made it pretty clear when he was uh, acquired by Milwaukee that, you know, you knew right away he was going to embrace the community. And uh, that's just the kind of guy he is him and his wife, Lauren. um, They right away, uh, and mind you, like that acquisition happened mid pandemic, right? So um, you're already at a kind of a juncture in society and especially in Milwaukee where all of this last year was so chaotic in this city because it was, um, you know, obviously you have a, a, a gigantic public health crisis. But on top of that, um, there were all of the racial tensions. There was um, there, we had marches in Milwaukee for a hundred and something straight days. Uh, maybe even more. I, I think the last time I heard it was 100 straight days. But this is um, a city that's 40% black. And 
Drew Holiday and his wife came in and they made a commitment to this community and bettering the community. And um, you started to see it during Bucks games, but uh, there was a pledge to, I mean, they raised a ton of money for, for black owned businesses locally. And um, that's just one of like the few things that Drew has done. I mean, he, he did the same thing in New Orleans. He made a, you know, made a big impact on like local education and school age children. And, um, and in Milwaukee, it hasn't been any different. He's a, uh, he's just, I'm really glad, uh, not even as a fan of basketball or someone who covers the Bucks, um, but as someone who lives in Milwaukee, uh, we are, we are better off because Drew Holiday is here. And the fact that he signed that extension, like Milwaukee as a whole, uh, the basketball team and the city itself is going to be better off having Drew here for, you know, however many years it ends up being rather than not having him. We're wrapping up now, but quickly, can you address the work that the front offense did in bringing in guys to fill out the bench and specifically someone like Bobby Portis, who's a journeyman playing for his fourth team in three seasons and how he's been able to contribute off the bench for the Bucks. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the, the recipe we've seen, right. Um, over the last however many years in this league, it's, uh, get the top end talent and then you could fill out the roster with, you know, reliable vets and Bobby Portis, um, at the start of the year when things were really clicking and the Bucks were playing well, um, you know, he made it clear that all he's been looking for is a winning situation and he's now in one and he's thriving. Um, he's having, I, it might be the best year of his career. Um, I haven't necessarily looked at all of his, uh, his stat lines and, and slashes over, over the course of his, his career. But I mean, he is, he is as happy as he has ever been in terms of his career and how, uh, what his role is, even though he's coming off the bench. Um, he's, he's made that clear over the course of the season, but, um, you know, I think every front office is going to take some criticism from their own fans because, you know, fans might not like a player, then you might think someone's overpaid, whatever. Um, when the Drew Holiday trade happened, it was, I can't believe, you know, the the overall, like the overwhelming feeling from around the league and from media nationally and locally was like, I can't believe they just gave that much up for Drew Holiday. And I don't think anyone's thinking that now because we've seen it work and we've seen Drew Holiday play and we've seen how much better he makes this team. But um, even dating back to a couple of years ago when they brought in Mike Budenholzer, um, Brooke Lopez was uh, basically a vet men addition. Like he was just kind of a guy they threw on the roster and they might've used some exception money on him, but uh, he wasn't getting paid much. He was like a guy they brought in to kind of fill out the roster. Like, Hey, maybe he can give you minutes, um, you know, off the bench or whatever. And it's completely turned. He's been the key to Mike Budenholzer's entire defensive scheme and one that's yielded a top 10 defense for each of the last three years. This is a team that's found ways to collaborate in the right ways between front office and, and the coaching staff. And they, you know, they're going to take heat, um, especially if they um, don't advance in this postseason. But they've given Giannis a lot to work with. And they've done a really good job of, of finding the right guys and, and building a roster that um, can genuinely contend for multiple seasons. Um, they haven't really taken on rentals. Uh, they're not really mortgaging the future, even though they gave up a bunch of picks because you now have Giannis, Chris and Drew, like you have your, your core. Right. And so it's just about now figuring out how to make the most of filling out um, your roster and 
winning in the margins. But, um, you know, Bryn Forbes, people kind of thought like, all right, you know, he'll have whatever Kyle Korver's role was and maybe a little more. And he's proven to be super valuable for them. Um, Bobby Portis, we touched on, uh, you know, it, again, it's, it's terrible that Dante isn't able to, to play this postseason because we wanted to see what this team kind of fully looked like with stakes and, you know, healthy and completely unlocked. But uh, this front office deserves a lot of credit. And I think they took a lot of heat early on and a lot of it was deserved. But um, when you look at what this roster looks like now, they, they deserve a lot of credit for how this team looks and, um, and what they've done to support Giannis and a small market team, especially in the face of all of the rumors of yet another star potentially leaving. And another thing about the front office, which I think is probably a bit of an afterthought now, was the botched sign and trade of Bogdan Bogdanovich this offseason. But again, like, you know, you don't need to think about those kind of things with how they've how well they filled out this roster we've seen this season. Um, just the last question before we let you go. And of course, thank you for your time and joining us this episode a lot. Is you touched a bit about the stakes for Bud specifically if the Bucks don't have a good showing in this series. Um, given that they have had a you know whopping win percentage 714 over the last three seasons, but really no real postseason success to show for it. Is there anything else like larger at stake for their performance in this series or to go even beyond? I I think that if, you know, let's say hypothetically the, the Nets um, eliminate the Bucks and it's not, you know, a close seven game series or whatever, let's say it's five or six. Um, and the front office decides that it's time for a coaching change. I don't know that you see much else in the way it changes, you know, they're not in a position to like blow up the roster by any means. You know, I don't think that they, I don't think they try and move Chris. Uh, they're certainly not going to try and move Drew um, and everyone else on the team, you know, obviously not even mentioning Giannis, but uh, everyone else, it's not, those aren't really pieces that's going to get you anything substantial back. So, you know, I think the biggest looming change would be um, the coaching staff. Uh, and beyond that, it's just a matter of, do you risk giving up a very successful known commodity for what's ultimately going to be an unknown? Because I don't, I don't know who's out there. I don't know who's going to be available that you can look at and say like, this is definitely a better choice moving forward than Mike Budenholzer. And Bud deserves a lot of criticism that he's gotten the last couple of years. Um, his unwillingness to adapt, his unwillingness to change um, as a series goes on you've seen him come off of that a little bit. And I do think he deserves credit for that some, but ultimately this is going to be a decision by, you know, ownership and, and the front office where they have to say, they're going to have to feel really good about uh, a potential candidate. I don't know that you can make this change without knowing, you know, and having someone in mind or having someone already lined up because this could be franchise altering potentially. Right. And like, you know, that could be a good alter, but uh, it could also get worse from here. The grass is not always greener, but it just depends on who becomes available and, uh, you know, the kind of due diligence they do in their in their coaching search if they were to uh, move on from Bud and make a change. Pratik, it's been a really great time getting to chat with you. This figures to be a very interesting series, obviously, for the Bucks and beyond the series as well. 
if they do happen to advance. Um, thank you again for joining us today, and we'll let you get back to your afternoon of watching play of basketball. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me.